Easter Sunday, and we're so excited because Jesus' tomb is empty. It's the greatest news that mankind has ever heard. He's risen from the dead, and this is great news for those of us who are in Christ, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. There are other people out there that maybe they're on the fence uh, spiritually. Maybe you're listening right now via live stream or you're listening here and you're not sure whether Jesus actually came out of the tomb alive. What does that resurrection even mean? Some people out there are actually skeptic about it and they, they've got other explanations for the empty tomb and why that happened and how the Christian faith even started in the first place. It could be some very good news for you the Resurrection Sunday, depending on where you are in your own faith journey. Now, why do I think Resurrection Sunday matters? Well, the, it, Paul basically said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we're really just wasting our time. The whole Christian faith is a scam. We might as well go home. The Christian faith matters because when Jesus came out of that tomb alive, and not just alive, because you'll see if you, if you ever read the Bible, there are other places in the Bible where people were raised from the dead. Even five or six weeks after Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. One of the questions you might have is, okay, so what's the big deal about Jesus raising from the dead? He just raised somebody else. Well, what's the difference between Lazarus and Jesus raising from the dead? Lazarus, some years later, after he raised from the dead, Lazarus died a natural death. Jesus raised from the dead, and he came in his resurrection body, and that's a body that's never going to die. And here's the good news for us Christians. We, we are going to get that same kind of body when we die and we go to be with Jesus because he says he's preparing a place for us. So there's a great hope. That's called the blessed hope that we have. Jesus' resurrection validates all the outrageous claims that Jesus said about himself. You remember that part where they brought this uh, invalid to Jesus on a pallet and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And it just shocked and astonished the Jewish people listening because they said, you know what? Only God can forgive sins. And here's Jesus claiming to be able to forgive sins. He, he said that if you put me in the tomb, if, uh, if you destroy this body in three days, I'll raise it from the dead. And then he did that. He's kind of validating all the other claims he said about himself. Like he said, one day, everybody's going to die and be judged, and I'm going to be the one that judges every person. And the, pers and the people listening said, only God can do that. Only God's the judge of all mankind. And yet Jesus was claiming it for himself. So he, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then all these other outrageous claims he made about himself have to be false. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to take you on a little journey, I, a journey of a debate, an imaginary debate that is across the centuries, an imaginary debate between two atheists or people who are, who are convinced that there is no God, that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he's not divine, that when he died on the cross, he stayed dead. Those are what these two atheists believe, and two popular atheists today are named Sam Harris and Dr. Richard Dawkins. So I want to put them in a debate about, and here's the debate topic. The debate uh, proposition for today is, is the Christian faith valid? Is the Christian faith valid? So we're going to look at a, a debate between two atheists, Sam Harris and Dr. Richard Hawk, Dawkins, not Hawkins. 
I think that guy was a, a host on a game show back in the day, Family Feud. Anyway, Richard Dawkins, who is a skeptic and a debater of Christians versus uh, two apostles, Peter and Paul. So you have to imagine this because they lived 20 centuries apart. Uh, I got this idea from uh, a great pastor named Andy Stanley in this book called uh, Irresistible. And so uh, these two atheists are going to debate Peter and Paul, and the atheists get to stand up, and they speak first. And so Richard Dawkins stands up, and uh, he takes the floor, and so does Sam Harris, and they immediately launch into this blistering critique of all things in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Jewish Bible. They're, they're blasting it. They're arguing even persuasively that the universe is not just 6,000 years old. The, uni the universe is 13.8 billion years old. The earth is 4 billion years old. And they say that this, despite what a full century of scientific insight attesting to the antiquity of the earth, there's still more than half of our neighbors out there that believe the entire cosmos was created just 6,000 years ago. And this is incidentally about a thousand years ago, and this incidentally is about a thousand years after the Sumerians invented glue. Okay, so they're making fun of these Christians that believe in a 6,000-year-old earth. So next, the two atheists, they're going on in the debate, and they would start highlighting God's genocidal directives to the ancient Jews, they say, we've got a problem with the Bible because of all the violent passages in it. They would point out the lack of evidence for the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. They would argue persuasively about the dangers of religion. They would cite in clear detail the atrocities that are carried out in the name of God and religion today. Then Richard Dawkins, he'd criticize people of faith, and he would say this, faith is the great cop-out. Faith is the great excuse to evade the need to think and to evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of rather than or because of the lack of evidence. So there's Richard, Daw there's Richard Dawkins and there's Sam Harris. And now, finally, now they're going to bring their closing arguments to this debate. Um, Richard Dawkins says this, the God of the Old Testament He's arguably the most unpleasant character of all fiction. Notice he calls it fiction. He's jealous and proud of it. He's a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. He's a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. He's a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal. This guy has a lot of adjectives. Infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal and capriciously malevolent bully. People give one another to keep on believing. So this is what Richard Dawkins says. It's time that we admitted that this Christian faith, it's nothing more than the license that religious people g give to one another to keep on believing when all reason and logic fail. So there's Richard Dawkins, and he's done, and he sits down, and you know what? He even says this. He says, let me, let me back up. He says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but it's just weird. You might expect this of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents that are composed, revised, translated, distorted, and, quote, improved by hundreds of anonymous authors and editors and copyists unknown to us spanning across some nine centuries. 
So finally, Richard Dawkins says, I'm done, and he sits down. I've said everything I need to say. I've obviously invalidated the Christian faith. Sam Harris concludes with this. He says, the fact that my continuous and public rejection of Christianity does not worry me in the least, this should, should suggest to you just how inadequate I think your reasons for being a Christian are. And then Sam Harris sits down. And they think they're triumphant. They got this look on their face, the smug look that you see some people have when they're convinced they're right and everybody else is wrong. And they sat down triumphant in their own persuasive speeches. So now we've heard from Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, two atheists. And now the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul are going to reply to them in this debate. First off, Peter stands up. And Peter, of course, the old, he's the old fisherman and apostle. He would stand up in this debate, and he'd say something like, you know, guys, I'll be honest, I've never really given much thought as to how old the earth is, so I can't really comment on that. Maybe Paul can. He's more learned than I. I'm certainly familiar with the God of the, what did you call it? The God of the Old Testament? Hmm. I do know my people's history, including God's instructions to both Moses and Joshua, and I'm sure the reason that I've never questioned these stories is because how and where and in what manner I was raised as a Jew. But respectfully, Richard and Sam, none of what you said, none of that has anything to do with my reasons for following Jesus. Sam, you mentioned the inadequacy of my reasoning. So allow me to explain my reasoning. I only have one reason, really. You see, when my rabbi... When my teacher was arrested, I ran away. And then when I came back, and when I was asked if I knew him, I lied. And when the Romans took him up on that hill called Golgotha, or Calvary, he died. And in that moment when he died, I was like you. I had no more faith. I had no more reason to believe in him. I didn't even know what to believe at that point. And even when the women, when Mary and her friends, when they came into the room on that Sunday that we were staying and they told us that Jesus' tomb was empty, I didn't assume any miracle at that point. I'm no fool. Have you ever seen a, a crucifixion? Of course you haven't. Let me tell you, no one survives a crucifixion. I assume someone had stolen his body or perhaps the women in their grief and, and their sadness, maybe they got confused, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. But you know what? I was curious, so I ran and I went with John to see for myself what had happened. And you know what? Before I knew it, I was running. And yes, I was hoping, but when we arrived at the empty tomb, I didn't know what to think, neither did John. Later that day, Mary Magdalene, she found us, she insisted that she'd seen the master alive. But I wouldn't allow myself to believe it. You see, I'd just spent three years following a controversial rabbi. I wasn't going to spend any more time chasing a ghost. And besides, I had a price on my head. I'd better be careful or I might end up a ghost myself. So that night, like we usually did, the other men and me, we found a safe house to meet and were gathered together and the doors were locked. And here we were huddled, talking and whispering and trying to figure out and make sense of everything that had happened in this last week. And that's when he came in. Nobody saw him walk in. I swear to you, the doors were locked. 
But we looked up, and there was Jesus, and he was very much alive. Guys, I can't argue with anything that you just said, but I would like to make one thing clear. My reason for believing isn't something I've heard. It isn't something that was read to me. I believe what I believe because of what I saw. I watched Jesus die. And I know for a fact because I also saw Nicodemus and Joseph bury him. But then God raised him from the dead. And guys, I saw him. And that is the reason. In fact, that's the only reason for my hope. And then Peter sat down. And he says, Paul, basically tag team. Paul, it's up to you now. So now we're going to hear from Paul. And he stood up and he said something like this. Gentlemen, I can see that you both believe that religion is dangerous. And you know what? I wholeheartedly agree with you. In fact, when I was a younger adult, more than any other Jewish person in my day, I weaponized Judaism. I arrested, I threw into jail, I tortured, and I even oversaw the execution of these so-called Jesus followers. And I did it in the name of my God, thinking I was doing exactly what God wanted me to do. Sam, you say you aren't fond of Christians? Well, neither was I. And while you and Richard are content to attack with your pens and your tongues, I went even further. I used a sword and a whip and a noose. I wasn't content just to write about it or debate it publicly. I was deputized by the chief priest in Jerusalem, and I did something about it. My goal was to stomp out the way, as we called the Jesus movement back then. And yes, I was convinced, I was confident that I was a faithful servant. I was doing God's work. But you know, then something happened to me. You probably heard about it. I was traveling on my way to Damascus to do more violence, to arrest more Christians, to stomp out the way, and to keep doing what I was doing. When outside the city, I went blind. And it was only then when I was blind that I really began to see. Richard, you mentioned weird stories. Well, here's a weird one for you. I'm just telling you what happened. I heard a voice, and the voice said to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? By that time, I had a hunch who it was, but I still asked, Lord, who are you? And you may not believe me, but I'm telling you that the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus, as in the crucified and buried Jesus. Jesus is the one, Jesus, as in the one that I thought was dead and gone. Well, long story short, I was commissioned by God. I was commissioned by the God I thought I was serving the whole time to take the message of Jesus and to take it to the entire Gentile world. And that's exactly what I did. And from what I understand, nobody in the modern world disputes that that's exactly what I did. The only thing you can dispute is why I did what I did. Sam and Richard, why would a diehard Pharisee like me do a complete about-face and serve the very person whose memory I had committed to wipe out? If you're really bent on dismissing the Christian faith, you're not just going to have to dismiss the credibility of my Jewish ancestors. You're going to have to dismiss me. One last thing, gentlemen. For the record, there's really only one story that matters. It's the story Peter just told you. It's the story that's chronicled in Matthew and Mark 
and Luke and John. And when you think about it, it's really not much weirder than what the two of you believe. Because if I understand your philosophy, you believe that all of life arose from a single organism. Peter and I believe that a full-grown man arose from a single grave. You see, Jesus is alive, and I saw him, and that changes everything. And then Paul sat down. Now, you got to figure out who do you think won the debate. Late in life, Peter wrote a letter to his Christ followers, and he said this. He said, always be prepared. Kind of sounds like the Boy Scouts, doesn't it? Always be prepared to do what? To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So if somebody comes up to you and says, why do you believe in Jesus? What are you going to say to them? What is the reason for your hope? Why do you believe in hope that there will be life again and a better life for those who trust in Jesus? Why do you believe that will happen after people die? Peter didn't say you needed to defend every verse of an ancient text. He didn't say you have to defend the morality of every event chronicled in the Old Testament. He says what you are called to be prepared to defend is the reason. Why do you hope and why do you have this hope that you have? The gospel writers tell us that it reignited Peter's hope, the resurrection. That what reignited Peter, it began with an empty tomb. It solidified with an appearance of Jesus. It solidified with Jesus meeting with a group of them in the upper room on Sunday evening. And it continued with a conversation with the, with the, with the risen Jesus on the beach up in Galilee some weeks later. You see, you might relate to Peter, maybe, and I don't know, of the two apostles. Everybody relates to one person usually more than somebody else. And maybe you think about Peter and what you know of his life, this fisherman who left his fishing boats and began to follow Jesus, or the apostle Paul, who used to be this rabid Pharisee enemy, arch enemy of the Christian faith, and how he became a Christ follower and took the gospel to the Mediterranean world in the first century. Peter or Paul, I'm not sure who you relate to more. Maybe some of you might relate to Peter more than Paul. Because I think Peter, if he stood up again and he says, I need you to have a closing argument in the debate, I think Peter would say something about this. He said, it's not just that I saw Jesus risen from the dead a number of times, not just that I talked with him and I ate with him and actually saw him rise up from the earth and ascend into heaven up on the Mount of Olives. It's not that just that I'm a witness of that. All that is true, but that's not the only reason that I believe in and follow Jesus. One of the other main reasons that I believe in Jesus is because Jesus gave me a second chance. You see, when Jesus was arrested and put on trial, and I went to the high priest's residence, and I'm out there at the courtyard around a charcoal fire, three times I got asked if I knew Jesus. And three times I lied and said that I didn't know him. Three times I chickened out. Three times I took the easy road, thinking that maybe what was happening to Jesus was going to happen to me. Instead, Jesus didn't raise a hand against them. Jesus didn't speak up in his own defense. Jesus, like a lamb led before the shears of silence, so Jesus did not open his mouth. He didn't curse them. He didn't call God's judgment down on them when they raised him up on a cross. He just took it. 
Three times I lied. I said I didn't know Jesus. That, that, what that did was that gave Jesus the right to disqualify me as one of his apostles. That gave Jesus the right to say, you know what? Of all my leaders that I'm going to have in my church, Peter, I can't rely on you. You're out. I was so weak when I thought I was so strong. But sometime after Jesus appeared to be alive, we were uh, Jesus' early followers. He told us that he was going to meet us up in Galilee. We didn't know when or where, but it was, a, it was a day of the week, and I was with my fishing buddies who were the apostles, and I said to them, you know what, I'm going to go fishing. And, and my friends, they said, we're going to go with you. And we went out that night, and we tried to go back to our commercial fishing life. Maybe we're trying to say, how are we going to make some money? I guess we got to go back to our profession. Went back to our old job and caught no fish at all that night. It was pretty discouraging. And then somebody on the shore, he's calling out to us and he says to throw our fishing nets on the other side of the boat. And you know, when I heard those words, something about that request sounded familiar to me. It gnawed at my memory. And so we tried the nets on the other side of the boat, and man, there was this huge, miraculous catch of fish. And John caught on before I did who that man was who was calling us from the shore. It was Jesus. And at that moment, hope surged up in me. Hope based on how kind and gracious that I had seen Jesus act towards so many others in his ministry. So I swam to shore and I embraced Jesus. And you know what? Later on that morning, after we'd eaten breakfast, Jesus asked me three times, not just once, not just twice. He asked me three times consecutively if I loved him. And you know what? He didn't even call me Peter anymore. And of course, he didn't de I didn't deserve for him to call me Peter. The name Peter means rock, something solid, something you can count on. And I was anything but a rock. So Jesus called me Simon. He said, Simon, do you love me? Did I still love Jesus? What could I say to that? Jesus knew me better than I knew myself. Before I'd brag that I'd go to my death before I'd ever deny him. But we both knew how I'd caved into the pressure. And so in my response, I told Jesus, Lord, I really like you. I love you as a friend. I just had to humble myself and I had to tell Jesus the truth. But you know the amazing thing that happened next? Jesus didn't reject me. He didn't judge me. He didn't condemn me. He just said to me, Simon, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to take care of my sheep. And it dawned on me that at that moment, Jesus was saying, Peter, you're back. Peter, I'm restoring you to leadership in my band of followers. And even after I'd messed up, Jesus gave me a second chance. He was showing me what I call amazing grace. I didn't deserve it, but he dusted off all my failures and he set my feet back on a firm path. You know what? At that moment, Jesus, I actually think he had more confidence in me that I could become the kind of man that he made me to be than I had in myself. And so I will always follow and worship Jesus as the stunning, astounding Lord of the second chance. I saw unconditional love in action that day. And you know what? I received it. And hopefully I'll spend the rest of my life following Jesus and declaring the amazing good news to anyone who will listen to the story. That's why a lot of us can relate to Peter. 
Because maybe you're in a place in your life right now where you can relate to that apostle. Maybe over time you've, you've found yourself drifting away from God. Maybe you felt like you've let God down. Maybe you felt like you haven't lived up to the potential that God had in you when you first became one of his followers. Maybe you're even wondering if God will still forgive you and take you back. Maybe you're hoping today that Jesus will treat you the same way that he treated Peter on that seashore by Gat in Galilee. That Jesus will forgive you and dust you off and give you another chance and set you on the right path that he had for you the whole time. Friend, I'm here to tell you that that's who Jesus is. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. He's full of mercy. He's full of wisdom. He's full of promises. And he makes good on every one of his promises. He's worthy of all your faith and all your loyalty that you can offer him with your life in return. John the Apostle, later when he wrote a letter, he put it this way. John says, you know what? We love God because he first loved us. And I'm hoping that today might be the day for you, the day that you'll step out in faith and trust in Jesus and declare that you're going to be a real, genuine, lifelong follower of Jesus from this day forward for the rest of your life. What I'd like to do now is to invite Holly and Becky and Eve and the worship team or whoever's going to sing the final song. I'd like you guys to come up at this time and be ready. There's a song that talks about what Jesus did for us. It's called Death Was Arrested. Came out in about four years ago in 2015. Some of the lyrics in that song are this. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus rose with our freedom in hand. And that's when death was arrested and my life began. When he says my life began, he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about that quality of life that never physically dies, that, that life that's going to be with Jesus and with God forever. And that life begins when you and I put our trust in Jesus. We put our trust in him because he fulfilled every promise he ever made, including this one, including the one that when you think about it 2,000 years later as we're gathering in this place, in this church, in this local faith community, Jesus said these words 2,000 years ago. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades, that was a term for the gates of hell. That was a term for the place of the dead. That was a term for saying the powers of death. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and 2,000 years later, in 2019 in Sebastopol, there's going to be a group of people meeting in my honor because I will build my church and even the powers of death are not going to prevail against it because Jesus is the great overcomer of sin and death. And you have a chance to join him on his team if you want to do that today. You know, it's really not hard to take that step of faith. John writes in his gospel, he says these words, as many as received him... Talking about receiving Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
And so what are the three steps? It's very simple. What does it take to become a child of God? First of all, you need to believe. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You need to believe that when he went to the cross, he paid for all the sins, all the things you've ever done or said that were wrong and offensive to God. He paid the price once for all. You need to believe that. Secondly, you need to receive. You need to invite him to come into your life as your forgiver and as your leader. You need to be willing to say, I'm going to take a step back. Jesus, you're going to be my leader and I'm going to be your follower. That's what we're talking about when we say receive. And then thirdly, when you do believe and you do receive, God's promise says that you will become because as many as received them, him, to them he, became, he gave the right to become children of God. You will become a child of God. You will be forever in Jesus' family. So I'm going to invite us all to bow our heads now for a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I do believe that you are who you always claim to be. You are the Son of God. You are our Savior. You are the promised Messiah. And you proved every claim that you made when you rose from the grave and you conquered death. And this anniversary day that we celebrate it, Lord, you are the death-conquering hero. And Lord Jesus, today I declare that I'm going to trust you as my Savior, as my forgiver, and I'm going to make you, Lord Jesus, the leader of my life. Show me how to move forward. Show me how to grow in my relationship with you. Lord, today with joy, I, I celebrate your astounding victory and I want to be part of that. I am so thankful that if, if I've declared my faith in you, that you will receive me, that you will make me a child of God and that you're going to welcome me into your forever family. So Lord, I am grateful for that and I rejoice today. And I say all glory and honor to you, and may you just show me the way, what it means to be your follower and to join in your kingdom work for the rest of my life. I love you, Lord, because I know that you love me first. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.